places, everyone. I'm Lonnie Firestone. A couple weeks ago, I posted on Instagram a tribute to Danny Burstein, the beloved Broadway actor who contracted COVID and had a severe experience. Luckily, he's now out of the hospital and recovering at home. The first person to like the post had a stunning profile image. And when I clicked on it to see who it was, I recognized him immediately. I had recently seen him dance in the Broadway production of Moulin Rouge, and I remembered him as one of the magnificent dancers in the Fiddler on the Roof production from 2015, who did an unbelievable bottle dance in the wedding scene. He also performed in Natasha Pierre and the Great Comet of 1812. The performer was Reed Luplau, and after that chance encounter online, I immediately looked for a way to get in touch with him. In this conversation with Reed, we discussed the language of movement. For instance, two of his Broadway musicals, The Great Comet and Fiddler, involve Russian folk dance, with movement rooted in the twisting of wrists and the raising of arms with deep bends at the knees. It involves a specific vocabulary that each dancer learns, inhabits, and performs uniquely. That element of uniqueness is essential for Reed, and it bleeds into his work as a choreographer. Each dancer moves their body a bit differently, he says even when the steps are exactly the same. Which leads to my central question for Reed. How can we know the dancer from the dance? It's the final line of a poem by William Butler Yeats. In the course of our conversation, we'll unpack it together. Here's my interview with Reed Lublau. Hi, Reed. Thanks for joining me. Hi, thank you so much for having me. (laughs) I'd like to start this conversation with a line from a poem, actually, which I don't normally do in interviews, but there's a particular line from the poem Among School Children, which is by one of my favorites, William Butler Yeats, and I would love to hear your thoughts on it. So the, the final lines of the poem go as follows. O body swayed to music, O brightening glance, how can we know the dancer from the dance? This is something I always wonder about with regard to dancers. When the audience watches you perform, do you want them to see you, the dancer, or do you want them to see movement? That's such an interesting question. It's it's an amazing question. To think about because honestly, when I'm performing, I I love I love people to see the movement, but the movement through done through me because I believe as an artist, an, an individual artist, we all have something different to say, and um, everyone interprets movement differently. Even if um, the choreography is still the same, I'm going to do it a little bit different than the person next to me. But I think. In regards to your in, to the question, um, I would say it, it's a. I would honestly say it's a little bit of both. Mm-hmm. Well, if you have a background sense. in ballet, and when you're watching ballet, besides the principal dancers who are doing something unique in the center of the stage, the movement around it. Say you're watching Swan Lake 
should be mm-hmm. basically identical. And modern dance might have a little more room for variation, although in many cases, it's identical movement too. It's just modern as opposed to ballet. Yeah, correct. I think, especially with ballet, because it's very clean. And the thing with ballet, you can never get away with things being messy because we see straight through everything because it's usually the costumes are very tight fitting. We see everything as an audience member. Well, I want to get a bit later to your choreography, but just as a a thread to this line of thought, I've noticed in your choreography that each dancer moves completely differently. You don't Mm -hmm. have a line of dancers doing identical movements at all in the various pieces I've watched. So it seems, conscious or not, that you're playing with the idea of each dancer as a unique artist. Yeah. Moving in a way that's specific (laughs) to a character. Yes, absolutely. I mean, not yet have I created a, a, a piece that everyone looks the same or dances the same. I really, I really enjoy watching uh, people, individual dancers as themselves. And the way that I interpret movement, like I was saying before, is not the way that someone else is going to interpret the movement. So I really enjoy seeing how someone, how an individual artist can bring forth what I cannot get, I cannot get from them. So to me, in the, it's a mix sort of halfway, and I love bringing everyone's uniqueness forward. <clears throat> I, I love seeing everyone's individuality uh, in my work and seeing what they can bring to it. Um, and I think it just it makes it for more entertaining and more visually um, pleasing on the eye. And sometimes it's also more truth-telling when you see someone dance the way that they... A comfortable dancing as opposed to being battered and bruised to be fitted into a box where they don't really feel as comfortable. Hmm. And I grew up dancing. So I, I grew up with my mom's studio, but I grew up doing um, jazz, tap, acrobatics, musical theater. I didn't, I hated ballet. I thought it was um, very feminine as a kid. And it wasn't into, um, I saw Capalia for the first time and I was like, you can be paid full time to, to do this. You get paid to do this. When I was 13, 14, I think I was 14, I studied for a year at a part-time ballet school uh, and then uh, six months in, I auditioned for the Australian Ballet School and then left at 15, 16 to go to the Australian Ballet School in Melbourne. Um, so I I loved all different uh sides of dance and so that's uh i think has been a very valuable thing for me to be able to just be a good mover and as i got into my second and third year my contemporary teacher and the head of the ballet school noticed that i was more leaning towards contemporary and so they pushed that side of me um and uh, graham murphy and janet vernon who were the artistic directors of sydney dance company at the time uh saw me perform um, and then I, I was offered the job for the following year, right before I graduated ballet school. So I was extremely lucky. And to look back at it now is like, oh my, I was so lucky. I was so fortunate um, that I just went straight from school, straight into a full-time company that was 52 weeks, paid everything that I you could imagine um, at age 19. You mentioned earlier that 
you thought of ballet initially as being too feminine. What changed your mind about it? I think, honestly, seeing such big uh, masculine men um, in the company at the time, they were so uh, manly, for lack of a better word. And I think that's where that kind of stemmed from until I realized that ballet actually is very tough and it's hard and it's strength. So seeing the the masculinity in ballet now is was completely different from when I saw it as a kid. When you were coming up in your mom's school, were you one of only a few boys or was it a mixed group? <laughs> I was like the only boy. Um uh-huh. so it was very it was very tough. Um I did have uh other male students that were probably 15, 20 years my senior, um, and then maybe uh, students younger than me, but I never really had until I think I was about 13, 14 that I had uh, another friend of mine who was um, a male who joined my mom's studio. So then I had an equal counterpart. But yeah, I grew up very much the only boy in the studio in Perth, Western Australia, the most isolated city in the world. So it was very small. Um, But then um, it changed, of course, when I went to the ballet school and my only class was, uh, it was full of 12 men and 15 girls and we were always separated. So it was interesting to go into that sort of a mix as well. Yeah. Well, now you're a dancer working in New York and I imagine when you have conversations with your fellow cast members and company members that for other dancers, other male dancers who grew up outside of big cities, they may have had a very similar experience. Yeah. I was um, sort of born into it. I had no choice. I did try football and baseball (laughs) for my dad, but um, I just felt more comfortable and it's what I wanted to do with that question would be at the studio. I mean, when you look at a male dancer's body, it's an athlete's body which is why the idea of the male dancer always has such a heavy stigma when there's a boy in a class. It just always strikes me as so funny. I mean, so much about it is associated with sexuality, but yeah. the idea that it's not about strength or about uh, the impressive ways you can maneuver your body is, is, so, is so ridiculous. It's so rooted in a certain image of how a boy should grow up. Absolutely. And I, it's interesting. I, I'm not sure if it's something to do with it because I have grown up now and I'm more mature. And I think that the rest of the world has as well. I'm not sure. I haven't, I think when people know what, what I do, um, lately it's been, people are impressed. But I think when I was in, when I was younger and I was in the ballet and it was sort of looked down upon, or not looked down upon him, but it was like, oh, he's doing his ballet thing. Well, you know, the other guys are off playing football, um, which is always a hard thing. But um, I never really let it beat me down either. I just always stuck with it. And um, I knew that it's what I wanted to do, so I kept doing it. Mm-hmm. And it was making me happy. So, yeah. So- you're now a U.S. citizen for, I think, a little <laughs> over a year. Why did you make the switch to live in America when you had such a successful artistic career in Australia? 
Um, I got to a point where a, uh, a new artistic director was coming in and I just felt that it was time for me to either, I could either stay and see where this goes and I will probably stay and then I'll stay again and I won't really push outside the box of how much I want to grow as an artist or I could continue on on my own journey and um, see where it goes and the, the gift and the curse about being in a full-time company is, is that it's 10 to 6 Monday to Saturday and then when you're performing it's different hours so you never really get a chance to do anything else but the company work. And I think I, when I was 24 and I wanted to pursue more theater, I wanted to sing, I wanted to act. Um, I had already had an agent um, in LA and in New York. Um, and I wanted to give it a go. I thought I was young enough. And, <clears throat> excuse me, Stephen Petronio, who has a company in New York, and Azure Barton both created works for Sydney Dance Company, and there was my connection to sort of try New York. And they both invited me to come work for them. So I packed up everything. I turned down the contract, and I got my uh, O-1 visa and decided to move on a whim. And wow. uh, I got my... You could only audition for Broadway, TV, or film... Um, by having a, being a permanent resident or a U.S. citizen. So I ended up uh, applying for my green card, and I ended up getting my green card. And then finally, my agent could start sending me into um, Broadway and film uh, castings. Um, and it was literally like starting again. I was at the bottom of the food chain, and huh. I had to prove to my, the casting director's like Bernard Telsey, um, Tara Rubin, who had never heard of me because I've never been in the room for them. Yeah. And coming in at 25, no, wait, 27 years old um, was different. And they had no idea who I was. Yes, I'm a strong dancer. But then when it came to the vocal parts, um, I, it was my first time auditioning for singing. Uh, wow, that's in a, a room. Leap and of so faith. It, it is. It is crazy. Um, and you, but just like you are as a dancer, you just keep going forward and going forward and you get knocked back. But it was all a learning curve. And I kept up with uh, my vocal coach and I just kept practicing and finding better songs to sing for auditions. And um, it also comes, it's different because as a dancer, you can fit in a, a company dancer or a, a co contemporary company dancer, you can fit in and the choreographer can make work around you. Whereas if you're um, auditioning for a Broadway show that's, say, Wicked or Phantom or these long-lasting shows that have been there for a while, they're looking for something very specific to replace. So if I'm not the right height, if I don't sing the right part, if I'm not a tenor or a baritone and they need someone else, then uh -huh. I forget about it. There's so many different elements to it. Can you fit this person's costume that's leaving? And it took me a long time to remember that there's so many other factors in why you're not getting the job. And then, of course, the 2016 election really got to me. Um, as I have been a permanent resident of 
the United States since I had, I've lived here since um, 2010. And as a permanent resident, you are treated like a citizen, but you don't have the right to vote. And so I, you know, I really was interested in getting my citizenship because I, I don't plan on going back to Australia anytime soon. Um, and I really want to have a say what happens politically because we're all affected by it. And I studied and I studied and I studied and I got a hundred percent on my test, which I was very happy about. Nice. I was very adamant that I had to get a hundred percent, um, in my interview. Congratulations. And thank you. And, um, it was great. It was very overwhelming. It was very overwhelming. And it was, you know, I, I cried. I don't know. I don't know why it was just very, um, it was crazy, but it has work. I've just been very fortunate with work and career wise that something keeps happening for me to stay here. And right now I still keep wanting to create, and this is the place to be. I, I, I honestly don't think that I could do what I am doing in Australia um, as much. Um, and so that's why, yeah, that's why I wanted to come here and say it's just opportunity and, and blessings for that. So, yeah. Yeah. My gosh, it's rambled for like 25 (laughs) minutes. I'm sorry. (laughs) Well, I have to say that people embracing citizenship is, is such an important and beautiful thing. And it's, amazing how much new citizens are so much more cognizant of that so (laughs) just to say that (laughs) Um, but now that you've experienced different kinds of work in America both in modern dance companies and in three Broadway musicals what do you see as the relationship between the dance world and the Broadway world I know that there's some principal dancers at the New York City Ballet who have made mm-hmm. big Broadway debuts. But do most dancers enjoy that kind of ease between those two worlds? In my opinion, yes. The more educated you are as a dancer or a performer or an artist or what oh if you're just a standby witness, the more educated you are, I just the more knowledge is better. And it's funny because when you look back in the 60s, 70s, and someone like Jerome Robbins, who was coming, who came from the ballet background, but then ended up creating all these magnificent Broadway musical shows, mm-hmm. would dive back in and out of between theater and and the dance world. And I love knowing what is still happening in downtown dance, in uh, contemporary dance, what's happening at, with Paul Taylor. Um, and still with um, Alvin Ailey, I always keep connections there. And then I also love to see what's happening with um, Broadway theater and theater in general and seeing how it's all guiding um, it up and up and up. And I think um, it was such a incredible honor to have uh, Holfest Schechter be the choreographer of Fiddler because it was just a match made in, in heaven. It was, um, you couldn't, it was just like made for it, which was so incredible. Um, and Bart, she was just so, so smart in that way of um, combining the two to for Holfesh to tell the story through movement as well. So, yeah. yeah. Well, since you mentioned Jerome Robbins and now Holfesh, um, yeah, I wanted to dive into that, but to frame it, 
in the context that you've performed in three Broadway musicals, and two of those three are set in or around Russia, which is pretty unlikely for Broadway shows. <laughs> like to have two out of three be uh, at know. least a century ago in Russia. So one is Fiddler on the Roof, and the other is Natasha Pierre and the Great Comet of 1812. So both of those uh, choreographic uh, kind of visions are different manifestations of Russian folk dance, but applied mm-hmm. to the vision of modern choreographers. Mm-hmm. But specifically in the Fiddler on the Roof world, where Hofe Schachter knows that Russian folk dance, it's, it's something that he's experienced personally, he knows it from his mm-hmm. own roots. How did he communicate and teach that kind of language? Um, after a rigorous, intensive audition process, we were put through a uh, two and a half week um, a dance lab, basically, um, where we were broken down to learn Holfesh's movement. And basically, it was a lot of we would spend ten to six in the in the studio every day. And the first week, we just did exercises that were to um, <clears throat> excuse me exercises to uh, combine um, the dancers together. I think it was, there was eight of us or 10 of us. And we spent all this time together to sort of connect as one. And we were learning this new technique of movement movement where it wasn't like, you're just going to learn the, the phrase five, six, seven, eight, and bam, here you go. We were put under a, a new way of learning how Hofesh moves. And it's a different way of technique where everything was so low to the floor. Um, our knees were basically, you know. Oh my God, did you in- have like insane knee pads on? <laughs> always, always, always. But I grew up as a tumbler, so my knees have, have been, you know, so strong, thank goodness. But um, yeah. And you uh, did the bottle it, dance, and it was yeah. like, it was like, an exponential version of the Jerome Robbins bottle dance. It was so cool. It was just, um, I remember watching Fiddler when I, when I was auditioning for the show, I always loved to go to the, um, the, the archives just so I could watch previous productions. Mm-hmm. And I remember watching uh, one and I was like, Oh my God, I want to be that bottle dancer. That is so <laughs> cool. And I remember watching La Haim and I was like, Oh, this is going to be so great. Um, and then it, one day, hopefully she was like, yeah, uh, read come forward and I was like oh but I never I never married to it until we started performing and we locked the show down because I was like it could change don't 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 get into this read don't cry it could change <laughs> um but it was it was so incredible and um just such an honor it's it's such a vital part of American Broadway history and to be able to have done that role not many people get to do that so <clears throat> To be able to do that in the revival was incredible. The the dance sequence in the wedding scene is mm-hmm. really amazing, and and that's why I want to put it in the 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 notes, the episode notes here, um, a link to it because it is it's so vibrant to watch. But more than that, it really is so familiar. If anyone has been to a Jewish wedding. Mm-hmm. Because, especially a wedding with um, that's uh, an Orthodox or a, a religious family involved, because it really feels it's a heightened version of what is familiar. 
specifically yeah. the twisting of hands? We had a long um, rehearsal period. I think it was it was eight weeks, which is which is two weeks more than usual. But it was also very important because we spent, I, I believe it was eight days straight. We hadn't left the table. So Bart had set up a big square table where every, everyone in the cast was sitting at the table. And we had professors come in. We had um, a rabbi come in and talk about the time. Because obviously it's based on history and we were learning all of for me, I, I am not Jewish, so I was learning a completely new thing. So we really got into why we were doing what we're doing and why it was so relevant at this time. Um, so it was extremely interesting to me. And uh, we would al- always have Friday Shabbat dinner still um, during the show. And, and, pe- and members of the cast that were Jewish would practice that. Um, huh. And so it was, it was very um, uplifting and real. take a quick break and talk to you about financial wellness. The term wellness is often associated with meditation retreats and skin treatments, but really wellness just means health and stability, whether that's physical, emotional, mental, or financial. IFWA, the Institute of Financial Wellness for the Arts, is a company that is specifically dedicated to the well-being of artists, and their team of financial coaches and advisors are trained to help artists manage their money and plan for their futures. Because many artists are paid project to project, they don't always think about long-term planning. There's also that long-standing myth that because artists live to create, it somehow means they're not thinking about their finances. The advisors and coaches at IFWA are passionate about art too. That's why they're devoted to giving artists the tools, vocabulary, resources, and know-how to navigate their careers with confidence and manage their money in smart ways. And with IFWA, you can work with an advisor at no cost. All categories of artists are welcome. Musicians, actors, playwrights, designers, dancers, directors, and on and on. Check out the IFWA to reserve a meeting with a financial coach and ensure that you're on track for a successful financial future. And now back to the podcast. Yeah, I think Ravesh is such a genius, and it was really amazing to watch that whole production. It was really perfect, I thought. Mm. The, um, just the way the, the, the movement was really part of it, and that's something I w- actually want to ask you about next, is the, the way that dance is an element of storytelling. Because I think so often in Broadway musicals, dancers are supporting the story not the other way around mm-hmm. and yeah. that could possibly feel maybe a bit limiting for a dancer who wants to be so expressive but the the singer the actor has center stage literally and mm-hmm. figuratively and yet in certain shows like fiddler even though you are not a named character you are creating this world like you're a a person in Anatevka who lives there and who came to the wedding. Yeah. What was the experience of that? And is that different from the experience in say the great comet where you're also doing this kind of folk dance? I think what Bart Shear was so 
smart about was um, making sure that the story was so clear first in what we were saying. And then with Hofesh being as clever and creative as he is, finding the right movement through, I mean, that's what he does is storytelling through movement. Um, so that, that marriage together was just um, perfect in my opinion, even down to, um, I'm not sure if people have remembered or when they're seeing it, but I, I was the second fiddler. So when the fiddler was always around in some scenes, especially in act two, when things start to go a little south. And the fact that he was there, the fiddler was always there in um, Danny's uh, mind, or Tevia's mind, sorry, to be like, you know, we're watching, and we're here, and this is your heritage. And in great comments, it was very clever on... Um, Sam's part to be able to identify which section was which and create which movement for, say, the opera, where we were all supposed to be very elegant. But that was such a different way of performing. And I still had a great time, and I hold great comment to my close to my heart as well. Are you drawn to musicals in the future that have more specific roles for dancers? like more storytelling roles um or is the idea of the the dancer creating the vibe of the scene is that the exciting part like what would you like to see for your next type of um of gig um i think the first i think being being an individual being able to tell a story that way is very important as a dancer because our career is very short um shorter than a leading man that could say that could continue on changing roles and sort of fitting in that sort of way or a soloist. And I think it's hard for an ensemble member. For me right now, I'm very happy with Moulin Rouge, but I'd love to, if there is a show out there that's a smaller show that also uses dances wisely and creatively would be great. And the thing is, as now in my third show, not that I'm, I'm not trying to, collect 15 shows i'm just wanting i wanted moulin rouge that was my show and after great comment i that was the show that i wanted so i've been very lucky that way i've been very um i'm not gonna say picky but i like to sort of now i want to sit back and be like you know what that revival of 42nd street i'm not really interested in it that's not for me Mm -hmm. um we can pass on that audition, you, you know, unless it's something that's in, incredible or a, a choreographer that I really want to work with. I love Andy Blankenbeel. I, I've worked with him a few times. Mm-hmm. He's so intelligent and it's not about, he's about storytelling and what makes sense. He, that comes first. I, I got to do an episode of Fosse with him and it was, he, he just brings the joy back into dance. And I have, I love that about him. He knows what he wants. It kind of relates back to the, first question about knowing the dancer from the dance it seems like Mm -hmm. you are interested in in roles where the the dancer has a real identity yeah no that's true thank you (laughs) (laughs) my therapist how much do i owe you (laughs) one show um on broadway this season that i really hope comes back when we're all able to be back is uh in jagged little pill there's 
uh, a dancer in the ensemble, Heather Lang, who has a scene where she truly is a character and she, in the midst of her dancing, is able to portray the character's descent into addiction and trauma and the movement alongside a particular musical number is so specific and it it sort of transcends the average dance number in a musical. If there is a role like that, that where movement can come forward and the dancer can be featured, that is amazing. Well, I wanted to end on your work in choreography. And uh, as I mentioned earlier, I noticed from watching some of your clips that each dancer has a unique identity and and a, a, a separate kind of character from the dancers next to him or her. And the mm-hmm. other thing that I really noticed that I was really struck by is how physically connected you have your dancers. Um, that each dancer is always touching another dancer. Mm-hmm. That really seems to be a signature kind of uh, style in the choreography that you've done, at least what I've seen. So now as you are thinking about your work in the choreography realm, now that we are existing in such separate spaces from one another, how are you thinking about creating work when we can't physically touch and when dancers practicing can't work around each other? I love partnering. That's why I think I always have people connected and it feels human in a way. I love when people are connected. Yeah, I think that's why I like touch so much. And when dancers connect with each other, there's something very char- char- uh, charismatic about it. And I just love partnering. I love anyone that can move together. Um, I just think it's really beautiful. And um, for right now, it's it's being tough. I am being creative. Um I did buy a beautiful brand new camera so I can start making some short dance films just purely for myself and my own creativity because I cannot get into a dance studio. So the beauty thing about film and creating it by myself, I'm creating it on myself, is you can cheat a little more, especially what instead of performing on stage, whereas I want something igniting on my fingers. I have to make it 20 times bigger on stage, whereas film, something so small and so subtle could look so beautiful. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've been really honing in on creating for film. And it's some, definitely something I'd love to continue more into into the future is uh, dance film and being able to it to be immortalized and shared to the world and not just in one city. You see this live dance but to be able to share it globally. But it's challenging because I do love partnering so much and I love connecting with someone else and being able to tell stories or feelings or create um, environments between two people. But I am being creative in my own time while it's being given to us right now. Yeah, that's great. It was such a pleasure talking to you, Reed. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And follow Places Everyone on Twitter. 
podcast production and original music by Cody Crab. Artwork by Jennifer Klockner. See you next time.